2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and for the declaration it spoke to all of our hearts. Lord, a, div a division that is not simply based on race or ethnicity, on background, on religion, a division that is based on one thing. We were all veiled. And now because of your love for us in your spirit through your son, we can see rightly. God, we want more. We declare that, Lord, even when we see, we get it wrong. So often we get in our own way. And I praise you that your invitation to every one of us, no matter where we came from or how we got to this place today, is to come. Welcome home, you say. My beloved, welcome home. Would we hear your voice, see your face, and Lord, be transformed from one degree of glory to the next, even this day. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. All right, I want to start off this morning on a serious note. I have a bit of a warning for you. Valentine's Day is coming. <laughs> and uh, for those of you lovebirds in here or hope, hoping to be, uh, possibly be lovebirds, you need to be prepared. So uh, there's going to be a lot of talk about what love actually is and what it isn't. And so I want to start off this morning with a little quiz. All right, so it's going to be true or false. Here's the first question or the first statement. Love is love, true or false? Oh. Correct. False. God is love. It matters where you start because where you start takes you down one road or the other. God is the one who has said, I am love. And when you start there, it helps you to see how to go to the next step. Next question. 
True or false? Love is a feeling that I have for another person from which my actions flow. True or false? False. I love you guys. Two for two. Yes. False. Love is a person whose actions change our lives and shape our feelings. And thus, to love is to act like him. Do you see the difference? If love is a feeling, it's all about me. But love is a person. It's all about him and then sharing the love that we've received through him with one another. You following? All right. Next one. True or false? True love does not seek to change me. True or false? False. And yet that's one of the the craziest things we hear all over the place. If you really loved me, you'd love me just as I am, and that would be enough. That would be okay, right? Here's the truth. True love always seeks to make me more whole. Stop right there. Just, Just capture that for a second. Especially the husbands and wives in this room. This is your purpose in marriage. True love always seeks to make me more whole, even while I am cared for right where I am. So don't miss that balance. God loves us just as we are, but his love changes us to make us more whole. And because that's who he is, that's then how we love. Amen? Amen. All right, last one. True or false? True love would never ask me to deny my sincere feelings or desires. True or false? False. And yet... Have you been on social media? Have you opened up a newspaper? And yet, when you're on social media and you're reading these articles, does the perspective of and the attitude that's being portrayed there, does that invite you to want to get to know that other person more? Does it feel like they're caring for you? Or does it feel incredibly divisive and belittling when we decide that my feelings and desires are primary? When here's the truth, true love is defined as self-sacrifice for the sake of the other. This is how we know what love is. 1 John 3.16, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. It's the definition of love to deny yourself for the sake of the other. And yet, wouldn't you have it, like, is it any surprise to us that the enemy of our souls has convinced our entire culture that love is defined as the opposite of this? This is true love. Okay, so why are we discussing all this stuff about Valentine's Day and love? Well, because believe it or not, as we continue in our study through the the book of 2 Corinthians that we're calling unshakable, which remember is this whole idea of how to live life in this broken world that's full of storms and waves and things that come crashing down on you out of nowhere, how to live in a way that is immovable, unshakable, deeply rooted in truth. Truth that always, please hear this, expresses itself in love. True love is unwavering and transformational. This is our fourth week in this study, believe it or not. And as we've been opening up and kind of going through this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, we've had some things stand out to us that I want to make sure we don't miss, especially if you haven't been here. He starts off with this reality that suffering is a a reality in our world that is inescapable. We talk a lot here about the God who heals, and we believe it and we've seen it. Amen? Amen. Yet at the same time that we have a robust theology of healing, we must also have a robust theology of suffering. You know why? Because Jesus had both. Because Jesus talked about both, because Jesus lived into both, because his life demonstrated both. So we must have both, even if they feel like they're at odds with one another. And so the idea of the no pain, no gain is only as we share in the sufferings of Christ will we also share in his comfort and glory. And didn't we taste even a little bit of that this morning as we saw Dan DeFelice in our midst and praised God as he's suffering and he would never have volunteered for this. None of you would have. And yet we're seeing God's glory play out in your life, brother, and in your family. And we're asking for more. Praise the living God. Holding on to the twofold boast is what you just saw me do. Praising God and praising the God that I see at work in one another's lives. That's the twofold boast. And then last week, forgiveness is the aroma of life. 
that God calls us to live in this place that he himself has put us as those who have been forgiven. And so the big warning last week, remember, was to avoid the trap of offense. The trap of offense where I put myself in the middle and I say, there is no way you deserve to be forgiven. And you know what? The answer to that, the issue there is no one ever deserves to be forgiven. Ever. And so when you do that math, here's what you say. I'm never going to forgive anyone. I'm going to be a bitter person for the rest of my life. And you know who loses when you take the poison pill hoping the other person dies? You lose. When the truth is, Jesus is the one, just as he shows us what love is, who's shown us how to forgive. That forgiveness in itself is also taking the action steps to be ready to care for and love those. To give up your right to be upset with and to hold on to anger. But it doesn't mean that we don't ask wise questions about boundaries, right? Forgiveness versus reconciliation, two different realities. If you want to hear more, we'll talk a little bit about that this morning, but go back and review last week's sermon if you want to hear more there. Today, here's where we're going. True love is unwavering and transformational, and those will be our two points. So first, a little context. Let's remember what this letter is all about. This is what we talked about primarily last week, this culture of self that didn't at all sound like America, right? It didn't at all sound like the world in which we live. Please note the sarcasm, right? It, noted, it sounded just like the world in which we live, a culture of celebrity culture where I want to get close to the people around me who have more power and more influence than I do, right? So if you're on social media and you, there's an influencer who comments on one of your posts, doesn't that make you feel amazing? I can't believe this person commented on my post. Why? Because it makes me feel better about myself. It makes me feel like my status just rose. This is what was happening in the church in the first century. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. No, we all follow Jesus. And those guys follow him. There's only one rock star. His name ain't Will, and it's none of you, right? It's Jesus. And when we follow him, that's when we begin to get it right. Because it's not going to look like us being high and mighty. And looking down our, our noses on anyone. It's always going to look like us coming with the aroma of forgiveness. The aroma that smells a whole lot like grace. Culture of offense. The other part of that culture was when you're completely intoxicated with self-righteousness. If anyone, if anyone says anything negative about you, you have to destroy them. Does that not sound like our culture? Why do you have to destroy them? Because they've literally just attacked your identity and value. But if your identity and value is rooted somewhere else, namely in him and in his love, you're able to actually turn and not take offense even when there is indeed an attack on your character. What about the culture of self-gratification? In that first century culture, that was all about Aphrodite and the sex cult. And thankfully, we don't live in a culture that's oversexed and that puts it in front of our little children all the time or things like that, right? No issues with porn, none of that stuff, especially in this place. No one here would do that, right? Friends, this is a struggle across the board. And if this is part of your struggle, I want you to hear all, all kidding aside that you have found a safe place here. You have found a safe place here to be honest and real and to work through this, to not feel like there needs to be shame because shame is what wants to keep you hidden and therefore trapped. But grace exposes the lie of sin so it can cover that sin with love and make you whole. Whatever your struggle is, friends, in any one of these areas, please realize you're not unique. This was written to an entire church full of people 2,000 years ago. We're not unique, hallelujah. <laughs> we didn't invent new ways of sinning. We just keep repeating the same old ways. So we're not unique, but we are dumb, right? That's really what it comes down to. Just kidding. So 1 Corinthians is a really heavy letter, right? So into that from last week, the question that we left with last week was, what's the aroma that's coming off of your body? Not the stench after you work out. The aroma that's coming out of your heart. 
right? Like, what does it look like when you're interacting with people who aren't loving you, who aren't caring for you? And one of the things that I think our passage for this morning does is it nuances what we looked at last week. Because we talked about the aroma of forgiveness needs to be what we are constantly living towards other people with, right? But you know what happens when we do that? When we choose to actually give up the right to be angry and we choose to forgive, that other person doesn't always respond rightly. How many of you know what that feels like? When you go to try to forgive someone and they just bite your head off and they continue in the same old way of only four of us. Wow. You guys are way... Here, I'll sit down. We're, if we're honest, right, we, we've all experienced that reality. We have. But, but here's the truth. It's not about how they respond. Can I say that one more time? The truth is not about how they respond. Because if it's about how they respond, who's it about? Them. When who's it really about? Him. Him. And so I can choose to forgive and be living with the aroma of forgiveness even and especially when the other is not willing to re-enter into relationship with me. Because remember, the difference between forgiveness, which is I give up my right to be angry, which means I'm getting the poison called bitterness out of my heart and soul, versus reconciliation, which says you're now trustworthy to re-enter into relationship with me. Do you see the difference? Those are two steps, and they are separate from one another. You cannot be reconciled until you're forgiven. But you can forgive without reconciliation. That's a wisdom question. But please hear me say, you never have the right to hold on to bitterness. You have the freedom to do it. But in Christ, you never have the right. Remember what we talked about last week. It is not the pain that keeps you from forgiveness. It's the pride. It's us saying, they don't deserve it. Friends, no one deserves it. And when you see that about yourself, that I'm included in the no one, that's what changes things. So listen, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. This is Peter talking about Jesus and saying that Jesus, the message of the gospel, is an offense in and of itself. And so even Jesus knew what it was like to only ever act within the aroma of forgiveness, but to be rejected time and time again. So it's not about how the other person responds. It's about your posture before the Lord. And one of the ways that our passage kind of points out to us that we can know if we're doing that well is our first point. True love is unwavering. This is how you can know. Paul says in interacting with the Corinthian church, he says, are you looking for us to to give you letters of recommendation? Are you asking for us to prove our authority over you, our apostleship? He goes, do you want to know what our letter of recommendation is? It's you. You're our letter of recommendation to yourself. Here's what he's saying. We've never stopped loving you, and you know it. Our love for you has been unwavering, regardless of how you've treated us. You are our letter of recommendation. That's the proof that we, that our passage for this morning gives us that we're actually living in to this great equation called grace. That I'm treating others as I myself have been treated by the Lord. And a couple of examples where you see this play out in life right here on our screen. First of all, caring for an aging parent or even an aging spouse. Many of us in this room, I'm looking around at you even now, are currently engaged in that or have gone through that. And you know that sometimes that aging parent or spouse is not exactly nice to you. That even though day in and day out, you sacrifice for them and you give to them and you give up a whole season of your life for them, sometimes they're cranky and rude. Sometimes they're really mean and cutting. And yet every day you get up and you love them and you don't take the bait of offense because you realize it's not about you. It's about where they're at, maybe with dementia, maybe with... Uh, physical pain, maybe with a broken body or a failing body. And so there's fear and there's anxiety and there's shame and there's the lack of control. And so you resist the temptation to take offense. And in all of those ways, you're loving just like Jesus. You're loving just 
like Jesus, who did not take offense. He did not assume the heart condition of the people who were criticizing him. He did not agree with their declaration of who he was. Because as Jesus himself said many times in the gospel, it's out of the overflow of the heart that your mouth speaks. Translation, what comes out of you is what's inside of you, not what's inside of me. Let me say that one more time so you don't miss it. What comes out of you is what's inside of you, not what's inside of me. When we're in relationship with other people, we are regularly tempted to believe that what comes out of them is true of what's inside of me. When the truth is, the words and the attitude and whatever else comes out of my mouth is a window into my heart, not a window into yours. When we live towards one another like that, it's what allows us to love and actually be committed no matter what. The other example here is forgiving those who have hurt us. Matthew 18 says, when Jesus is talking with his disciples about forgiveness, they say this, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? What does he say? No, 70 times seven, right? 490. I'm up to about 357 with Kristen. And uh, listen, with your spouse, it's really hard sometimes, right? So as long as you keep count, you only have to do 490, right? Right, babe? Wrong. It's not about 490. He's saying there is no end to how often you can and must forgive. Because remember, forgiveness is, about, is not about whether the other person deserves it or even if they're changing. Did you hear me? Forgiveness is about your relationship with him and your uh, uh, willingness and ability to love others. Which, by the way, if it was only 490, she would have been over her limit towards me like 20 years ago. <laughs> right? So, thanks be to God, there is no limit on that. He says, not, not seven times, but 70 times seven. He goes, let me demonstrate it to you with a parable. Let me tell you a story. He said, there's a guy who, owns the, who owes the king 10,000 talents, which when you translate the Hebrew to English, literally says 10 bajillion dollars. It doesn't literally say 10 bajillion dollars, but it's so much money that even if he worked every moment of the rest of his life, he could never repay it, ever. 10,000 talents. And he goes to the king and he begs forgiveness and the king says, I'll pay your debt. I'll eat it. You're forgiven. You may go. That's amazing forgiveness right there. That's a picture of what God offers to us through his son, Jesus. Right? That's why Jesus came. He was going to eat the debt for us. He was going to pay it on the cross. Then it says that that same dude who was forgiven walks out and he's on, on his way home and he sees someone that owes him some money. He says he, he owes him 100 denarii, which is 100 days wages. It's no small amount. Do the math. Calculate right now in your head how much is 100 days, a third of your salary, right? Let's just use broad numbers. A third of your salary someone owes you. That's a huge debt for you. They've really hurt you. It's a pound of your flesh. And he says, he starts choking him. He says, pay back what you owe. And the guy begs him for mercy and he says, no. He throws him into prison. He says, until you repay your debt, you're going to stay there. You know what that's a picture of? Bitterness. That's bitterness. You're going to stay in this prison until you repay your debt. But Jesus tells the other side of the picture of bitterness as he continues with the story. Because he says that when the king finds out about this, he says, you unmerciful servant, how could you be forgiven so much and yet not turn around and forgive those who also need it? So now you too will be in prison for the rest of your life. It's a picture of what bitterness does, friends. In our hearts, when we are bitter towards one another, we keep that other person in prison and we don't realize the entire time we're in the next cell. We're right next to them and we cannot get out because we've hardened our hearts using the logic of self-defense, of pride. And we've said, they don't deserve it. They never do. Neither do we. Which is why Jesus starts with the beginning and says, if the only way 
you're ever going to be able to treat one another with grace is when you constantly fix your eyes on the one who's forgiven you more than you could have ever owed anyone else. More than anyone else could have ever owed you. When you forgive, when you live in that atmosphere, you can then turn and forgive anyone of anything because you realize they're not in debt to you. They're not. You're free. And now they're free. Do you see the way, the math of heaven works? Hallelujah. This is the way of God and it has been from the beginning. I don't want us to miss this. This is my favorite Hebrew word. Sometimes there's a K or a C in front of it because it's a hard, it's a guttural H. So it's not hesed, it's chesed. Can we say that together? Chesed. You need to learn this word. It is the best word in the entire galaxy. What, you know why I say that? Because it means God's going to be faithful to his promise to love us no matter what. So if there was a word written on the cross of Jesus Christ, it would be chesed. If there was a word written over my marriage to this one, it would be chesed. The faithfulness of God to love us no matter what. It's the promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 15 when he called Abram to be his guy. And he'd have him go through this ceremony that when you read it and you have no idea the, the cultural context, it just sounds really weird. He puts Abram, he says, take these animals and cut them in half and then put them on either side. And then he has Abram fall into a, a deep sleep where he sees a vision. And the vision is of this smoking pot that goes in between the animals back and forth. And all of a, all of a sudden Abraham wakes up and he's rejoicing. And we're all just like, that's weird. And gory, right? Cutting these animals in half, not this way, this way, and laying them on either side, and then the smoking pot that represents the Spirit of God going in between the animals. What the heck's going on there? Let me explain what's going on there. It's God, when he called Abram, he said this, no matter what you do, I will pay the price to be committed to you. The only one who can do that is the one who has the authority. An ancient suzerain vassal treaty is what's in view here. In other words, a, a treaty between an invading king or a conquering king and those that are conquered is what's in view here. When Yahweh God says to Abram, I choose you. But what would happen in this treaty always, always, is they would indeed slice these animals in half. But then it would be the vassal. It would be Abram would walk in between them, declaring to the one who had the authority and power, if I mess this up, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Take a moment and wrap your head around the reality that Yahweh God is the one who walked in between the animals and said to Abram, when you mess up, may what happened to these animals happened to me. That's the cross of Jesus Christ. It's God saying from the very beginning, I know you're not going to get it right. But my love and commitment to you, my unwavering love, is not dependent upon you and your obedience. It is dependent first and foremost upon my character and promise. I will never let you go. That, friends, is the greatest news. When you've lived long enough and you've made enough mistakes and you've seen them blow up in your face to know that the God who really is is not the one that maybe you learned about growing up who expects you to get it all right. And when you don't, he's going to drop the hammer on you and that's going to be the end of your story. That's the opposite of who God is. When we mess up, he literally drops the hammer on himself. And there's a nail on the other end for this hand and for this hand and for these feet. Because no matter what you do, may what happened to them happen to me. It's the same picture that we see painted in Genesis 22 
when God does something crazy with that same Abraham now. When he says, I've given you a son from a wife who couldn't possibly have had one. She was barren. So here's the miracle. You have a miracle son. You're 99. Your wife is 90. How many in here in their 90s are planning on having babies? Um, Thanks be to God there are no hands raised because that's crazy, right? But it happened. It happened. And then God says, now take your 12-year-old son and go sacrifice him. And we read that and we're like, what is going on? That is so weird. Is God the God of child sacrifice? Is he asking for Isaac to be abused? Nope. You know what he's doing. He's pointing to that same Jesus. Because when Abram brings Isaac up to the top of that mountain and he's ready to sacrifice his, his son, and the language is important, it says, now I know, Abram, that you truly love me. Because you were willing to sacrifice your son, your only son, the one you love. When Jesus comes and walks on the earth and he's baptized, what does God say from heaven? This is my son whom I love. Do you hear it? That wasn't about child sacrifice. That was about God showing us a picture from the very earliest days of his interaction with his people. Of what he was getting ready to do. And how he's getting ready to love us. See the same thing in Isaiah 53. If you've never read Isaiah 53, can I recommend you just go home and read it and just sit in it? Isaiah 53. You know why? Because you cannot help but see Jesus in that passage. You can't. Suffering servant carries our sorrows, bears our iniquities, like a, a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Right? Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten and afflicted. Again and again and again, it's this description of this servant who's supposed to come and rescue God's people, but surprisingly, he's going to suffer. Do you hear the combination that we've been talking about all morning? Suffering and glory. It's why Jesus laments when he comes into Israel, to Jerusalem rather, on the, the week he's about to be crucified. And he says these words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have like a mother head with her chicks gathered you under my wings, but you'd have me not. You hear the heart of Jesus, even as he is being rejected, not just by the Jews, but by the world. But he has a special place in his heart for his Jewish people because Jesus is Jewish. And God chose Israel to bring the Messiah to the world. And so he starts with his heart for Israel and says, I wanted you to realize who I was, but you wouldn't have it. And yet, please realize, even there you see God's grace at work. You know how and why? Because if Jesus was not crucified, we would have been. So God, at just the right time, uses the rejection of the entire world towards his son to bless the entire world through his son. Do you see the different math that keeps popping up all throughout the Gospels? Even to the point where after Jesus died and was resurrected and his disciples are in the upper room and Thomas is there and Thomas is like, yeah, yeah, I I hear the stories of Jesus being resurrected, but I've not seen it with my own eyes. So you know what? I'm not really going to buy this stuff because I would need to see it and touch it in order to believe it. And Jesus shows up and says, Thomas, here's my hands. Here's my feet. Here's my side. See for yourself. But then he says something I don't want us to miss here today, friends. He said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Blessed are we who believe without seeing and touching the body of Jesus. This is the love of our God, and it is a love that is unwavering, no matter the cost. If you want to know if you're getting it right, if the aroma of forgiveness is coming out of you, this is the first point. No matter the cost, no matter what it takes to lay down, it does not mean we don't ask and set good boundaries, ask good questions about how safe this person is. Please continue to hear that nuance. But what it does mean is the principle is simple. It is simple. There is nothing that is unforgivable. There is nothing that is unforgivable. There is no cost too great to forgive because Jesus has already done it. That's our first point. Our second point, 
Love, true love is transformational. I hope you notice as Christian was reading, there's a lot of talk about the law, the old covenant to the new covenant. There's a transition that happens here that I don't want us to miss. Because here's the, the, the reality. It says the ministry of death, which is the law, condemns. Right? And so you could read this and think, oh my goodness, the law is a bad thing. The law is not a bad thing. Our reaction to the law is a bad thing. Paul ta- calls the law in this passage glorious. It was written by the hand of God. It's not a bad thing. But the law had a purpose. And that purpose was to show us how not righteous we are. It was live these ways, all 600 plus of them. How many of you have trouble following the top 10? We all should have our hands raised right now. But when there's 613 of them, the reality is it's designed to show us how holy he is and how much we lack in that holiness, which is why there was always a sacrificial system that said, here's what I know I deserve, and it's going to be passed on to this animal. And yet the whole time it would feel like, I don't feel like that's fair, because Am I, am I only as valuable as a cow? Am I only as valuable as, as, a, as a dove? Something's missing here, and that something is Jesus, the telos, the end, the purpose of the law. When Jesus came and walked the earth, he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to fulfill it to show you what the perfect man is supposed to look like. So again, you've heard us say this before. Hey, remember, how many of you have heard say, no one's perfect? No one's perfect, right? We use that all the time. We use it as an excuse so that we don't have to be. When we mess up, well, no one's perfect. Guys, Jesus is perfect. And Jesus shows us, please, please hear this, who we were always supposed to be. Could you imagine living in a world where there's nothing broken? Where you don't make mistakes, where you don't grow old. That's what Jesus came to show us. And down and deep in our hearts, we know it and we want it. Which is why when Jesus walks into our lives like he's done this morning, something happens down here. Something begins to swirl and we're not sure what it is, but we can feel it. And I want to encourage you to realize that swirling down here is called the Holy Spirit. And that's God's way of wooing you, of wooing you to himself. He never forces us to do anything. And rarely are we intellectually convinced of theology that we already are in disagreement with. What changes us is the expulsive power of a greater affection. What changes us is a love that will not let us go, that's greater than anything we've tasted thus far. So let me encourage you, if you're feeling that swirling here, invite him in. I sense you, Lord. Show me if you're real. I feel you, Lord. I welcome you in. He never says no to that because the purpose of all that he's done has always been to restore the world to the way it was supposed to be. Us with him and us with one another. With no cancer. With no relational breakdown. With no divorce. With no anger. With no abuse. Man, I'm hungry for that day. And I thank you that that day, Lord, is not a dream that I have to cross my fingers and really hope is going to come. It's a promise that has been won and is coming. So if you feel him today, welcome him in. Because what we see in the passage for this morning is this idea of moving from one glory to the next, and that's precisely what God has for us. I hope you heard the part about Moses and his glory face, and I hope it was a little bit confusing to you because it is a little weird. Right? A lot of the stuff in the Bible is weird, and we can say that out loud because it takes studying. It takes digging in. But once you start to see the angle that God is coming at us with, it's neither weird nor confusing. It's wonderful. And so it's worth our time. And so when he talks about Moses, please realize he's talking about Moses from the Old Testament, right, who brought his people out of slavery to Egypt into the wilderness and to the promised land. 
right? And in the middle of that, he goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 days and he receives the Ten Commandments, the law. And Moses comes down the mountain, and what does he see the people doing? Thank you, thank you. Worshiping a golden calf. Right, he goes to his, his brother Aaron. He says, what happened here? Who happens to be the high priest? He goes, I don't know what happened. Uh, the people, all, they, they were going to give me their gold, and we threw it in the fire, and out popped this golden calf. Right, Aaron. Right, right. He's totally blame-shifting here, right? Like no one that I know does, right? But, but here, here's the thing. From the moment the law was given, its very introduction to the people of God, what did they do? They broke it. They failed. They fell on their face. And then that was the end of the story, and there's no more grace. Wrong. Moses goes back up the mountain for 40 more days in the presence of Yahweh God. And only after, please don't miss this, only after Yahweh makes him new tablets and shows him his glory, only after Yahweh God actively forgives the people of Israel do we then read, and Moses' face shone with glory. Do you hear the nuance that's coming out in this passage? It's not just the presence of God, because if you're in the presence of God and you're not coming, and he's not coming to you with love, the presence of God will burn you up. He's holy and we're not. But when you're in the presence of God and he decides to declare goodness and mercy, grace and favor, like he does with Moses when he says, I can't show you my face, but I'll show you my back. And as he's walking by Moses on the top of Mount Sinai, he declares this, Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Chesed. There it is. Abounding in chesed. And when Moses spent time basking in that unfailing love, he came down and could not hide the glory that was shining on his face. If that's not an invitation for us to spend time in the presence of God and experience that same love and grace, I don't know what is, friends. But I hope you didn't miss it. Because our passage is better than that, which is the whole point of this passage. It's not just that we need to go try to find where Mount Sinai is, which the historians are still disagreeing about all over the place, right? Like, we don't have to go find, climb up this mountain, spend 40 days up there, and hopefully God meets with us, and hopefully he walks in front of us. Wrong. Wrong. He's not asking for us to enter into this old way that was always going to fade because it was always about Jesus, and Jesus is, always here, is already here. He's saying, Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, I'm welcoming you into an entirely different kind of way of relating. It's not about your obedience. It's about your relationship. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law for you. And because that's the case, please don't miss this. He says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. That's an ongoing participle. It's continuous. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What is he saying? In no uncertain terms, the one driving the bus of your glorification is not you. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And he's going to bring to completion what he has begun in you. The high priestly prayer in the upper room when he's with his disciples about to go to the cross. He says, Father, I want you to change them, to fill them with your spirit because I want them to be with us so that we can be together. We can all be one forever. What is he praying? Would you bring us back to the garden, but in a better way, the garden that can never fail, the place where we can all be together as God originally intended it to be, which is why the rest of the New Testament talks about us in this way. We are the temple, we have the Spirit, and we're being transformed. True love, friends, 
is transformational. It transforms you into the real you. How many football fans in the house today? Let me see your hands. Come on. Wow, not many. All right, so football is the game where you have the little ball. <laughs> there are four quarterbacks remaining in football. We're coming to the end of the season. We're in the playoffs, right? The cha- NFC-AFC championship game. You've got the Lions against the Niners, the Ravens against the Chiefs. What do all four of these quarterbacks have in common besides the fact that they're playing in the championship games this week? They all know Jesus. And not only do they all know Jesus, they've all gone out of their way even this season to declare that they know Jesus and that they have put their faith in Jesus and that Jesus is the one who has so changed them that he's enabled and empowered them to be who they were always created to be. Hello. Right? So all of these guys, let me sum it up, agree with my sermon. Right? All of these guys are living testimonies of the reality. They're the top. They're the best. There's no one better in their sport, in their thing. And they, they all say, glory to God, because without Jesus doing what he did in me, I would never be fully the person I was always designed to be. And if that's true for them, why would we think it's not true for us? Beloved, true love is unwavering and transformational. Two questions for us as we end our time together. Where are we still living under the veil of the law? Where are we still living according to shame and its assessment of us? Because in case you missed it, Moses didn't just have a veil on because the people of Israel were afraid of him. That was part of the reason. But the other part, as Paul brings out, was because he would spend time in God's presence and then that glory would fade. And he didn't want the people to see a fading glory. He wanted them to see the whole thing. Can I tell you that that's the heart of our Father for you. He doesn't want you to experience a fading glory. It's why he made his home in you. It's why the same Shekinah glory that shook the top off of Mount Sinai now lives in you when you put your faith in Jesus. Not a fading glory, but a growing glory, a transforming glory from one degree to the next, to the next, to the next. Hear this, even when you mess up. Because if our God can use the worst mess up in the history of the universe called the cross, to make us whole and to make us his home? You think you can't use your little sins, no matter how big you think they are, to do the same thing in your life? It's precisely what he's doing in your life, even today. Do you want to know the boldness and freedom that come through true love? I hope you heard we sang it and then we read it. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is from what? Sin, shame, guilt, death, fear, you can fill it all in. Whatever your struggle is, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I want to invite us into a season right now where we're going to pray. And some of you, you've never done this before. It might be weird to you. All I ask is that you just, if you want to sit there, you can sit there. But listen, at the very least, listen. If you want to close your eyes, close your eyes. But for everyone else who's willing, let me encourage you to close your eyes. And we're going to engage that same Holy Spirit that is at work inside of us. Who's, who the, the promise of Jesus is that he's going to continue to do his work in us. So Lord, I want to start off by praying for those whose hearts you've been stirring this morning. Maybe for the first time. And I ask for more. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would send more of your spirit, that there would be no doubt that it's your love that is at work in them. That, Lord, they would hear your voice as the voice that they were made from and for and taste your love like never before. Show them, Lord, 
just how good you are. God, I pray for those who are still stuck behind the veil in different ways. All of us are. So there's no shame there. I pray that you'd show us those places, Lord, where we are stuck, living as if somehow it is really truly up to us when your unwavering love has told a very different story. Now I pray, Lord, that you'd give us all a picture of the cross. The suffering servant, the maker of heaven and earth, who did not consider equality with God something to be demanded, but laid it down, humbling himself, becoming obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Fix our eyes on you right now, Lord Jesus. Even as we declare your chesed, Yahweh, Yahweh, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. For me, for me. We adore you, Lord. We thank you that you see us, Lord, that we don't have to play games. It's not even about how hard we try. It's simply about receiving what you've already done for us. Remove the veil in Jesus' name. Remove the veil, Lord. And in its place, pour out more of your love. Open our eyes to see with greater freedom today than we ever have before that we could truly become people you've made us to be. And then, Lord, as you're doing this, would you give us the joy and the honor of sharing of your great love with as many people as possible. We were all made for this, Lord, and we praise your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.